Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, I've got a story for you on cannabis education and what it means for a growing and changing industry. After that, reporters Sean Galanka and Janelle Calderon break down the races for congressional districts one, two, and four, races that could decide which party controls Congress. And at the end of the show, reporter Howard Stutz sits down with me to go over G2E, the yearly gaming conference in Las Vegas. had a, a back injury. I've got four screws in my spine. I, I go through a lot of pain and, and inflammation. You know, doctors always want to give me pain pills, whether that's Vicodin, Oxycontin, whatever. And for me, it just didn't, it doesn't agree with my body. Like, I do not like it. I can't function. There's nothing I can do when I'm under those kind of narcotics. And I found with cannabis, I've got much more relief without all the side effects. That was Ryan Dickinson, a 37-year-old Reno resident whose experience in part drove him to look for a new career field. He's enrolled in a cannabis certification program, which launched in 2021 at UNR. Ryan and I talked outside a busy coffee shop in downtown Reno on a crisp fall morning. I first got into the UNR program because I wanted a higher education and I wanted to be able to break into the industry with a higher pay because as of right now entry-level jobs are just too low paying for me to be able to support my family. I'm hoping that the education will help me break into a higher position that I'll be able to sustain my family and then be able to do something that I enjoy and love. The six-month cannabis certification program at UNR is offered through Greenflower, a cannabis education company that started in 2015 and runs several cannabis certification programs at universities around the U.S. It's not a degree, but a certificate saying that you completed the course. Think of it kind of like a trade school, but offered through the university. Here's Max Simon, the CEO of Greenflower, talking about their partnership with UNR. Greenflower basically supplies all the online content. We supply the instructors. It's our project assignments. We're kind of basically the operational side of these programs. And the university brings the accreditation and the recognition in the local communities and vets the academic framework. So one question I had was what the certificate offers students. And they have four career pathways within the marijuana industry. One has an emphasis on the business side of operations, one on the horticulture and growing aspect, one on medical applications, and one on compliance and risk management. Students pick one of those four paths. The cannabis industry is pretty complex to operate in. And, and that means that either somebody needs to learn how they can operate or they need to get that hands-on experience. But the problem with the, the hands-on experience exclusively is that oftentimes these businesses are too busy. We certainly are preparing people to enter the cannabis industry because oftentimes they just don't know the real mechanics of how this industry works. Ryan said that he applied to a few marijuana businesses in the Reno area, but found that without experience, he just couldn't get a position where he wanted, and that's what brought him to the UNR program. That's what I'm using it to, to get into the grow side and hopefully learn and become a grow master in the end, and then eventually move on to open my own, my own business. 
And while Ryan aims to become a cannabis grower here in the state, there seems to be a shift in the industry as a whole. I would say 2022 has probably been our most difficult year when it came to getting our legs under us and truly doing business in the great silver state. And a a big chunk of that was our relations with our our regulatory body and, and some of the problems with taxes and you know fees, fines, and general business practices of, of running, running weed businesses here in Nevada. That was Will Adler with Silver State Government Relations. Prior to starting that lobbying firm, he worked for the Marijuana Policy Project. Will was part of the campaign to legalize recreational marijuana in Nevada. He was referring to the struggles the industry has faced in the state this year, where the 15% tax on marijuana is based on a quote-unquote fair market valuation of marijuana. That's done during a six-month window, but the price of marijuana has dropped notably in the last year. In June of 2022, Nevada's taxable marijuana sales statewide totaled $72 million. Last year at the same time, it was $92 million. So on top of the rocky year the industry has had in 2022, A labor shortage has also affected most industries, and cannabis was not immune to those shortages. Here's Max again with Greenflower. There is a a definite shortage of people that really understand how to grow cannabis from seed to sale in a legally compliant way. And that can be really painful because when you're, you know, got fast turnaround times, you've got very important quality milestones you're looking to hit. Oftentimes, cannabis companies can waste a lot of money or a lot of time if they don't have the right people in in the mix. You'll see that one of the big problems in this industry is there's a ton of turnover. The need wasn't so much any one department. It was the continual turnover or the struggles of the COVID crisis. During the first years of the medical industry, we put out an application for a dispensary position. I was a dispensary manager. We had 380 applications from across the country. Today, we put a dispensary manager in, in Nevada up and we had 12 applications. Only three of them were from in-state and only, I would say, two of them were qualified. We are now actually trying to recruit folks, whereas before we were pushing them away from the door and we didn't have enough positions. So the cannabis industry is maturing. It's emerging from this awkward, brackish water of being a nascent industry at a time when recreational marijuana is legal by state law, but not recognized federally yet. Although the attitude towards weed from a federal view has notably softened recently. The Biden administration announced that it will be pardoning anyone convicted federally of simple marijuana possession. And the president has encouraged states to follow suit. And some are speculating that this is a precursor to the federal declassification of marijuana as a Schedule One drug. Other Schedule One drugs include heroin, LSD, peyote, and bath salts. In general, cannabis has a lot more professionalism and a lot more to it than people understand. In a lot of ways, there's far more science and far more meticulous law and regulatory rule following than there is you know, Bob Marley or black light posters in the, in the modern day cannabis industry. And with maturity comes growth and money. According to Max at Greenflower, about 500,000 people are currently working in the cannabis industry nationwide, and that number could possibly triple in the next five or so years. There is a lot of ongoing opportunity. I, I certainly won't say that it's any of it's easy to attain. So I just always hope that people can take a look at this seriously, because when you have an industry that will be doing, you know, $100 billion in revenue in the next five to seven years and is growing not just domestically, but globally, and you see how much there is a need for well-trained talent, you realize this is a cool opportunity. 
So while there are those opportunities, there is no centrally regulated board or organization focused on streamlining cannabis education programs across the country. Here's Will again. A marijuana employee in one state is not necessarily the same valued skill set in another state. In fact, some states do things completely opposite and different than Nevada does when it comes to regulatory framework. So we've run into that problem directly with skill sets transferring over because they have to be Nevada compatible. That's where the UNR Cannabis Certification Program comes into play. It's a university-sanctioned program that prepares workers to enter the industry. UNLV has a similar certificate program available through the Academy of Cannabis Science. Having a university program around it is, is extremely helpful to me and or anyone in the campus industry who, who does the, the current struggle of hiring in this industry is almost impossible because there is a lack of professionalism out there and a lack of skill sets still where it's hard to even say you have to have five years experience when there, there really hasn't been a legal industry for five years, right? So it's hard to even vet the current base of workers out there. Ryan has personally dealt with the professionalism and lack of it. I've met some amazing bud tenders who really know what they're talking about. They'll talk about terpenes, they'll talk about the way it was grown. And then I've been to dispensaries where they're not quite sure exactly what they're talking about. As a dispensary or a bud tender on the medical side, I think it's really important because we're basically giving medicine, right? So with the growth of the industry, education has to catch up. And in many cases, when highly educated people are needed in cannabis, they are found outside of the industry. Those scientists and business professionals come from more established economic sectors because there's been a lack of formalized education within the cannabis industry. People from big ag or places like PepsiCo and Coca-Cola are now being brought into the larger cannabis operations to help with management and the science side. Ryan is particularly passionate about that science side and the purity of the plant. We're discovering new things every day about cannabis, uh, new benefits, new ways to grow. In general, I think education is highly important because we're talking about essentially medicine that's going to be helping people. And you don't want to be putting harmful pesticides or chemicals or, or just anything that's going to harm people. For a long time, the war on drugs and the vilification of cannabis was something that shaped people's view of cannabis. I asked Will about what the stigma looks like in 2022. Oh, yeah, of course, there's still a stigma with cannabis. The idea for some folks that, that cannabis is anything but reefer madness is gonna continue on for generations, or at least the, the continuation of this generation, I believe. But I would say that the stigma has begun to die or has a transitional point. A frequent, I'd say 30% of the market is 60 plus in the Nevada cannabis industry. The majority of those 60 plus patrons have no desire to be identified as a cannabis user. So that self-stigma maybe is more out there than the general stigma in the world. So what's next for cannabis in the state? What does the future of cannabis look like here in Nevada? Here's Max and Will. Based on the way the regulations are forming and based on the, quite frankly, the culture of, you know, Nevada, I think that they're going to be a real, you're going to be a real leader in the consumption lounge space. We have got our arms around lounges and cannabis consumption in that form. In the next six months to the next year, I, I would almost guarantee we'll see cannabis lounge establishments opened up here in Nevada. We're, we're already seeing a desire for that, in, in especially the Vegas economy. And so in mid-October, companies and individuals could actually apply for consumption lounge licenses here in the state. Even when weed is legal in the state, that doesn't make operating a business easy. Here's Max again. 
the one thing I will say about cannabis, as much as I love it, it's really tough. The compliance requirements are really tough. The rules are heavy handed, you know, and, and then trying to operate a business in a lean way is challenging. And so we believe that education is a crucial component of making this industry successful because you're not just dealing with normal obstacles, you're dealing with all sorts of additional stuff that most people are not even aware of. And that's why the education is so important is because it allows you to navigate the quirks of the cannabis industry with a lot more ease. And what's next for Ryan? So right now I work, it's a 12 hour job, sometimes up to 60 hours a week. The money's definitely good. I definitely take a beating on my body. I'm on my feet all day, I'm pushing heavy buggies. After my surgery, I kind of told myself I wanted to get into something easier on my body, and I started really thinking about it, and I have a lot of passion for cannabis, and I went, you know what, if I'm gonna change careers, I'm gonna change jobs, it's gonna be something that's important to me, and important to helping people. And I, I think essentially cannabis is about helping people. This story was reported, produced, and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. We'll now be jumping into a discussion about congressional races. Here in Nevada, we have four seats in the House of Representatives, and we've been reporting on all of them. You can find our reporting on our elections page at the top of our site, thenevadaindependent.com. So let's jump straight into Joey's chat with reporters Janelle Calderon and Sean Galanka, who've been covering those congressional races. I'm here with our wonderful reporting team, Janelle Calderon and Sean Galanka. You guys have been covering a lot of the congressional district races that are going on here in Nevada. And today we are going to be talking about uh, Congressional District 1, Congressional District 4, and Congressional District 2. And if you're wondering where Congressional District 3 is, that was on a previous podcast, which you can go find in our backlog. And so we're going to start with Congressional District 1, which is between incumbent Dina Titus and her Republican opponent, Mark Robertson. This is an interesting district because it was recently redrawn because of redistricting. So Janelle, you have been reporting on this. Tell me a little bit about where that district is to start off. Hi, Joey. So District 1 is in Las Vegas, and it used to be just the center of Las Vegas, but now it shifted a little bit more east, and it stretches out now into Henderson and Boulder City, which added more Republican residents. So that's why it's become a little more competitive. As of September, actually, the district has 155,000 active registered Democrats and 112,000 Republicans. So it's close, depending on the people that actually vote. Yeah, and this used to be a pretty safe district for Titus, right? She's been she's been in CD1 for a pretty long time now. Yeah, about five terms, so 10 years. So let's start with uh, Titus. You know, what are her big running points? As a Democrat, Dina Titus runs on her name recognition, that she's been representing the district for a while, even though it's changed because of the redistricting. Although she's a Democrat, she doesn't lean into the socialist ideas, which, as we remember in the primary, Amy Villela, who was running more in the Bernie Sanders ideologies. So yeah, you interviewed Dina Titus for your on the record with her. So what did she what did she have to say? When the redistricting first came out, she was not very happy. She said they f***ed us up, basically. <laughs> she she fears that 
there's not going to be that much representation. So the people that are in District 1 should keep her in to have the representation rather than having someone new who also would have less seniority in Congress. And seniority comes with some power in, in Congress. It, you know, she, she's already part of these committees to advocate for people in, in the district. So when I talked to her, she focused a lot on infrastructure, the economy, housing. Yeah. And so I'm curious, you know, how is Mark Robertson then kind of comparing himself or, you know, saying that he should be elected over, over uh, Titus? Well, because she has been in the seat for so long, he says that the Congress, the Congress district residents want someone new. They want a new face. Because it is more Republican, the values have probably shifted. People just wanted their voice to be represented as Republicans. What are Mark's big issues when, when it comes to like running? Yeah, the economy and government spending are big issues for him. He says, you know, this inflation was just simple math. With the COVID-19 relief bills, if you're going to put so much money into the economy, you're bound to have an inflation. And he said that now we're dealing with the consequences, basically. All right. Well, cool. So what's kind of the prediction for CD1 right now? Where are they in terms of polls? Well, it's a toss-up, really. The Cook political report marks it as a toss-up. All right. Well, now moving on to CD4, also in Las Vegas. Sean, you've been covering that. Explain where CD4 is and what it looks like right now. So CD4, you know, redistricted during this this past redistricting process, it saw more Democratic voters added into the district from District 1. Basically, because of that, it now stretches a little bit into the northern part of the city of Las Vegas, but it covers North Las Vegas and northeastern parts of, of Clark County. But then it stretches throughout rural Nevada, kind of into the central parts of the state through Nye County, Esmeralda County, Lincoln County, and you know, kind of that, that central band of the state before you get all the way up to, to District 2 covering the top portion of the state. And it's a, a very large district. There's a lot of ground to cover. It's, it's roughly the, the same size and area as the, the state of Louisiana. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I, I always love that our congressional districts are bigger or as big as some states. So Stephen Horsford is the incumbent Democrat in that district, and he's running against a Republican, Sam Peters. So is Horsford also running on the fact that he's an incumbent? You know, what are his big talking points right now? Yeah, I think really a piece of what he's running on is, is his record. He's kind of championed these these recent legislative accomplishments of congressional Democrats, you know, the the Inflation Reduction Act, a major gun reform, gun control measure, even, you know, stretching back to to some of the major spending bills passed last year, like the American Rescue Plan and the infrastructure bill. So really, he's he's kind of honed in on, on those legislative accomplishments that he and, and other Democrats have had. So let's move over to his opponent, Republican Sam Peters. How does Sam running on? So Sam Peters, really the key issues for him include immigration, inflation and federal spending and government overreach. In particular, on federal spending, he's basically said the government's spending too much money. It needs to stop. It's contributing to inflation. And on immigration, I think he's been a strong proponent of finishing former President Trump's border wall. He's really closely aligned himself with Trump. He and Mark Amaday, the District 2 representative, were at the Trump rally in Minden, Nevada, early in October. Peters, he, he describes the situation at the southern border as an invasion. So really, he's taken a, a very hard line stance on immigration and, and trying to cut down illegal immigration. 
And what is the expected outcome of that race? Is it also a toss-up? So I think in some sense, it is a toss-up. We've seen some very close polls. There's only, you don't get a lot of public polling on these congressional races because they're just harder to poll. It's harder to get that kind of subset of a congressional district versus a, a whole statewide sample. So we haven't seen many polls, but in the couple public polls that we have seen, they've been pretty close. But Janelle mentioned the, the Cook Political Report. They're a nonpartisan group that rates races. And just recently, the Cook Political Report moved its rating of, of this District 4 race from toss-up to lean Democrat. But just given the, the political environment, I, I'd probably put this in kind of that, that toss-up range. And then briefly, we will chat about District 2 between Republican incumbent Mark Amaday and his opponent, Democrat Elizabeth Mercedes Krause. District 2, very, very large district, the biggest district in Nevada. And it's basically the entire top half of the state. It's like the top square part of the state. So Janelle, you've also been covering that race. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So like we mentioned, the, the district is has been historically Republican since it became a district. Mark Amade has been in the seat for a while. His message is basically, you know, stick with the home team, stick with who you know, because he's already kind of represented you, basically. He's mentioned that immigration should have some type of reform. And so there's also Elizabeth Mercedes Krause. Tell me a little bit about her, Democrat up here in the North. What's what's kind of her her stance? Yeah, well, she's an educator and she's also part of the Native community. So a lot of her focus is on education equity for these groups of indigenous and Native communities. She grew up in Las Vegas, but she since moved to Sparks. So even though it is usually red, you know, she has seen a lot of support in the June primary. She gained 30 percent of the Democrat vote. So it's not likely that she will win, but she has received a lot of support. Cool. Well, Sean and Janelle, thank you both so much for going over the congressional district races with me. And uh, we'll see who wins come November. So thank you both so much. All righty. And now from politics to gambling, let's talk about G2E. Joey, what is a G2E? A G2E is a gaming expo in Las Vegas, and it stands for the Global Gaming Expo, and it's put on by the AGA, the American Gaming Association. Lots of acronyms going on here. Yeah, so this conference is the big tech conference, but for gaming, right? And when we say gaming, we're not talking about video games, we're talking about gambling, right? Fortunately for you and me, it's not video games, it's gambling, but uh, yes, that that is right. So let's jump right into that quick chat I had with reporter Howard Stutz. I am here with our gaming reporter, Howard Stutz, and today we are talking about the big gaming expo in Las Vegas, G2E. It's always traditionally the biggest single gaming conference and convention and trade show annually for the industry. Three days of a trade show and and four days of conference educational session. This one was significant in a sense because 2019, the Global Gaming Expo was the largest ever, 2020. It went virtual because of the pandemic. And last year, 2021, they had it, but it was very scaled down. A lot of the international people didn't come. This year, they're probably going to set records. I mean, it was it was jam-packed to the trade show. You have to remember the slot machine makers didn't have a lot of new product to display last year because nobody was sure what was going on last year, you know, with, with recovery. We're still in the in the midst somewhat of the end of the pandemic, sort of. But this year was full on, you know, after one day walking through the trade show. 
you know, a lot of new technology, a lot of sports betting. We've had legal sports betting. We're coming up on the five-year anniversary next May. And you pretty much have, you know, we have more than half the U.S. states, like 31 states have legalized it. Another five are going to launch. So on sports betting, you had a lot of, you know, new the technology that goes behind how they operate these systems. But they also have a lot of the educational conferences. The best part about one of these is there was a whole discussion over a couple of days about the California sports betting ballot questions. There's been two ballot questions in California, one backed by the Indian tribes, one backed by the mobile sports betting operators. And it looks like both are going down in flames. And they've spent, they're the most expensive ballot questions in the history of California. More than 400 million has been spent mostly negative ads against 27 or against 26. I mean, it's just crazy the way they've, those proposition 26, 27. So this whole post-mortem, they all agree that they're going to lose. And it was like, they're blaming each other on why. So that became, that became sort of a, sort of the interesting parts that came out of the um, educational sessions. But all in all, it was an event that, you know, it, the industry, gaming industry has been coming back slowly yeah. Is it, are people, did it seem like they were pretty upbeat and positive? They were excited for the future or are they kind of worried? The American Gaming Association, which sponsors G2E, they put out a, a survey of CEOs and everybody was positive. Shocker. I couldn't believe <laughs> they would, that would, there would be positive feelings going forward. I think the interesting part was the AGA put out like these three issues they want to look forward to moving forward with over the next year. A few years ago, they, that's when they said, we really need to go to cashless gaming, digital payments. We need to adopt cashless technology as an industry. They put that out in 2019. And it was, as we recovered from COVID, a lot of these companies, because people didn't want to use cash anymore, a lot of these companies adopted digital payment applications. That's still an effort they're pushing. They're also pushing to kind of modernize the responsible gaming efforts in the next year. They've had this issue effort for responsible gaming, you know, to not have problem gamblers in your casinos to do something, you know, to, to train your employees, recognize problem gambling. They are looking at expanding that and trying to modernize it more. But the most interesting thing was they are really going after the illegal off- offshore sports betting market and an issue that's in many states they have these um, convenience stores or bars or taverns that have illegal slot machines. They're not even, you know, they're not regulated by anybody. They don't pay taxes on them. The AGA in April sent a letter to the Justice Department and asked them to crack down on the illegal offshore sports books and these illegal gambling machines. That's now an effort they're going to be pushing forward. I, I didn't realize that offshore gambling and illegal slot machines were even a thing that, you know, was an issue. They've done some more research finally on on the illegal market. They believe it's about $300 billion is wagered annually on offshore sports betting, which are unregulated, you know, these illegal slot machines, whatever. It's cost the industry about 15 billion in revenue, they believe. So that's that's gonna be a big issue that we'll see it'll be brought up a lot more in the next year. It kind of seems like sports and sports betting is the future. I mean, it seems like that's where everything is going in a way, right? And here's, it is, Joey, but here is the most interesting fact. I try try to point this out to people. Nevada, record revenues, $13.4 billion in 2021. Yet how much, you know how much of that revenue was sports betting? About 382 million. It's not a lot. It's sports. And they know, we talk about this. Sports betting is the, the, the giant gorilla in the room. I mean, everybody, that's all anybody's been talking about for four years because of this massive expansion. We never thought we'd see 
31, 32 states with sports betting. It's very mm-hmm. amazing to see this. And it is something that they talk about. It has become a big issue, but it is, it's an ancillary business. It's a way of getting people into the casino. It's a way of getting more revenue. That's really what, what sports betting is. So it's, I mean, they want to get people into the casino. So you have a sports book while they're there. They might probably play a slot machine, a table game, eat in the restaurant, whatever. That's the that's the whole idea behind it, really. All right. Well, Howard, thank you so much for chatting with me. Glad we talked about G2E. My Wednesday indie gaming newsletter will have a complete write-up about a lot of the different things we saw. I saw at G2E. So it's free. Sign up for it online and get indie gaming in your email box every Wednesday morning. Thanks, Howard. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Ryan Dickinson, Max Simon, Will Adler, Janelle Calderon, Sean Galanka, and Howard Stutz for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us with coupons to your local pumpkin patch or whatever else is on your mind at podcast at Our original theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and June Pearson, and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. (laughs) Sorry, that was my cat.